What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This episode is brought to you by Bin Verified. Help chip away at the uncertainty that comes with online dating and use binverified.com, a leading platform for online background searches and people search reports. With their powerful search tools and extensive database, you could easily gather information about potential dates, which may help you find peace of mind before taking that next step. You can never be too safe when it comes to dating. Get 20% off today to help take control of your dating game. Visit binverified.com slash podcast. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor, and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week, I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives, both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week, to launch Series 4, I welcome the presenter and author, Katie Piper, onto the Radio Times sofa. In 2008, Katie was the victim of an acid attack, which left her with life-changing injuries. Her experience was documented in the BAFTA-nominated film, Katie, My Beautiful Face. Following its success, she signed an exclusivity deal with Channel 4 that saw her go on to establish herself as one of our leading television presenters. In this episode, we discuss diversity within the media and how she has dealt with adversity. The stuff going wrong is no bad thing. You know, it's really, really powerful. And I think as you become more resilient, you start to trust yourself that whatever happens, I've got the ability to be malleable, not to sit in it and be rigid. I can re- I can evolve, I can reinvent. So that confidence in yourself to be able to do that makes you realize that, not that you're untouchable, but that whatever happens, it's okay. Plus, we talk about Katie Piper's Jailhouse Mums, her powerful and poignant new documentary, which sees Katie travel the USA, meeting women who are pregnant or have given birth behind bars. Katie Piper, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you. So this is very much delves into your TV habit. So talk me through your kind of living room setup. What is the view from your sofa? 
Okay, well, our living room is it's quite modern living, I suppose, because we sort of spend all our time in the kitchen and we had an extension made um, where it's at the back of the house and in that in that extension is the kitchen, a sofa and a telly. So we just basically live in there with the kids. And then what was supposed to be the, the sort of front room is at the front of the house and it's quite a tiny little square room and all it's got in it is a sofa, a rug and a flat screen telly on the wall. And sofa from TV distance is, is quite small. So I suppose that's sort of like a snug where in theory mm. we were supposed to go and watch like adult films and chill out on a Sunday never happens um <laughs> like if we watch telly it'll be in the kitchen on the more uncomfortable sofa but for some reason that's just where we gravitated to i think especially when people have young children who actually controls the remote because often i think it's not the parents is it yeah well we don't even bother <laughs> when they're awake we don't even bother um but in the evenings which is sort of mine and my husband's time it's very much him because he's really good and quick at it and and if I get trusted with it I start cancelling everyone's recordings <laughs> and like <laughs> recording the wrong stuff from like 10 years ago and yeah so I can't be trusted oh bless you what when you're watching tv do you like to watch what kind of content do you like to consume we're a real mishmash, actually, because we love a series, we love a box set, um, and we like dramas with a twist. Uh, we just finished, actually, one called For Her Sins, which is on Channel 5. Um, and it's that classic, like, it's a female lead who has a secret from the past that comes back to threaten her existence and her family. And, you know, we, we'd like to binge watch, but we fall asleep by 10 p.m. So we can <laughs> we can only handle one episode. And if we're getting wild on like a Saturday night, we will watch two episodes. But then, <laughs> then we're exhausted the next day. But then we also quite like a, a light relief. So we're Gogglebox first dates. We love Mo Gilligan's latest show. Yeah. So, yeah, we like we like stuff to be a bit, a bit funny as well. Obviously, you've made a docuseries, but... What about documentaries? Do you watch a lot of that? Or does it feel a little bit like work? No, not at all, because this part of my job making documentaries is a part that I'm so passionate about that doesn't even feel like work when I'm doing them in first person. I've always been interested in, in people and other people's lives and what's going on and sort of curious slash nosy and you know I'll be in a crowded place say I'm on the tube or I'm sort of sat at a bus stop in, in a busy street in London I'll always wonder where are they going like why have they got such a big bag what are they doing how comes they're wearing this and making documentaries gives you the chance to ask that and to follow people and to find out so yeah, I always watch a lot of documentaries and it's a real mixture. I like things like 24 Hours in Police Custody. I love American Docs. I love sort of person-led stuff like Stacey and Louis Theroux. When you're watching telly, is there a snack and drink of choice that you will reach for? Oh God, I'm terrible. You know, snack, I want to graze for the whole time. <laughs> I mean, I love my crisps and I love my vintage crisps, like knickknacks, wheat crunchies, yes. salt and vinegar squares. Um, oh my gosh, premium crisps. <laughs> yeah. And nowadays, like crisps have become very stingy. Like one packet is about eight crisps. Um, so I feel like with you. you need two packets to make what used to be a packet in the 90s. That's 100%. Let's turn the clocks back now. So I want to really delve into what you were watching as a youngster. So let's return to kind of family life as you were growing up. So you grew up in Andover in Hampshire? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. What's your first TV memory? Gosh, well, only having channel one to four. <laughs> um, no internet, no sky, not even channel five, actually. 
and sort of operating the TV by pressing it yourself and going up to it and having like fuzzy black and white channels as well. And actually, you know, not really being allowed to just have free range of telly and maybe having like a video when I came in from school, watching Free Free Willy on video, (laughs) watching Jaws on video, thinking it was really scary. And then at the weekend, again, like probably going to Blockbusters and, and renting like Disney videos and bizarrely renting the same video every weekend and rewatching it. It's a bit weird. I remember you've just unlocked another memory for me, but I remember, you know, like having birthday parties and it would be all your friends coming around and then you could go and all choose one film yeah. and then get a pizza or something, yeah. which is Peak so nice. Times, yeah. I know. And it was such communal watching. Was TV watching for you kind of a family affair? We weren't big on telly in my family because I grew up in the countryside. But yeah, we would definitely watch some things together and probably a bit more focused and present because nobody had distractions. Nobody had emails or smartphones. If you were doing something, you were doing it. You didn't have other sort of outside noise. Um, But we just didn't have the TV on constantly. We'd more go out and about and do things and a, a lot of playing with toys and stuff as well. When did it kind of cross your mind of entering into the world of television? You know, when you were at school and in your teenagers, did you have any idea of what kind of career you wanted to pursue? I used to watch a lot of uh, TV at the weekends, things like Live and Kicking and, and Why Don't You and stuff like that. And I used to write in to all those TV shows all the time. And one time a TV show wrote back, it was called Wise Up on Channel 4. And I got to be on the programme. I must have been like, year 10 at school so maybe like 14 and I led this segment uh blondes and brunettes and I got I was like the team captain for the blondes and I got other blonde friends and brunette friends and we did this uh quiz and they filmed it all in my front room and my mum was I had to get permission obviously from an adult and I didn't tell my mum till the very late stage and was like yeah so this film crew from channel four are gonna come my mum was like what are you talking about um but yeah I think it's probably around that time I would have been about 14 15 what were you like as a teenager? Yeah, I was outgoing, um, quite tomboyish. Um, I loved the outdoors. I loved climbing. And, uh, you know, those were the days where you'd go out at like 10 o'clock in the morning and on your bike and just say, I'll be back at dinner time. And that was, especially growing up in the countryside, like that was the life I led and your friends were everything. So yeah, I suppose looking back now, a really lucky childhood because we didn't have all those comparisons of all the social media platforms. The world didn't feel as big and as connected, you know, so it was quite insular, but in a, a quite nice way. You've spoken about a number of times how over the course of your career, social media has been a a really positive thing for you to find your community and to be able to have conversations that in a world pre-internet perhaps wouldn't have been able to happen. But I guess you're right as well in the sense that social media has also brought some negatives with it. And I really liked there was a quote that you said, and it was something along the lines of, it's all about individual use. Yeah, social media. it's definitely personal responsibility because, you know, there's loads of things that we can access in life that we should practice moderation with, you know, like alcohol and lots of other things. So it is about moderation and, and not being on social always and not having any other ways to socialise and not seeing it as the holy grail. And I think when you start blaming the platform and not looking about how you're engaging with it, I think that yeah. could sort of is trying to sort of you know, put the blame onto something else. You've got to be responsible for it yourself. I wonder, just because you have like two young children, if you have kind of strict rules with them about social media or whether you would impart anything in terms of preventing negativity or stopping them from interacting with 
that side of the internet? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a person that likes to live in the present tense. So I don't like to sort of fret over the future when it hasn't yet arrived. And, I, and we're so far off it, you know, they're five and nine. So I don't want to lay down the law and be like, it's going to be this way and there's no flexibility. I think I would just navigate it with each individual child because they're both different personalities and sort of try and support it and help help them through it. But I wouldn't like to parent where this is my experience and this is what we're doing. I think they have to have their own experiences and not all of them are going to be good, but even bad experiences are valid and have, have their place in people's lives. And, you know, you can't have the bad experiences for your child. That's so true. I want to talk about you moving to London and, uh, you know, you said you're from the countryside and what that experience was like and you started in modelling and doing some TV presenting. So how did that all come about and what was that excitement like? Gosh, it's a long time ago. It's hard to remember now. Um, so I would have been about 21, so over 20 years ago. Um, and the first house that I lived in was a sort of shared house where we rented bedrooms and we even turned the lounge into a bedroom just to cover more of the rent. Um, one bathroom between five of us, one small like galley kitchen between five of us. So a lot of stealing crisps from each other's cupboards, (laughs) arguing about cleaning the toilet. Uh, but all of those other friends, old and new, were going to auditions for various things. So they were dancers, actresses, promo models, singers, all, all aspiring. So all living that hand to mouth life where we were just making enough to cover the room rent and then sort of buying gone off food at midnight in Tesco. And I think our dinner most of the time was going to the Chinese, eat all you want. And then like the lid would be like on the top and you'd have to cram the lid down and then we'd share the box. Um, so it was aspirational and it was full of optimism and highs and lows. But I think, you know, a bit of an adventure when you're sort of 21. And can we come on to talk about In 2008, you were the victim of a brutal attack. And after that, in 2009, you created a documentary called Katie, My Beautiful Face, which aired. And I wondered, why did you want to create that documentary? Or how did you get into documentary making? Yeah, so I obviously came to documentary making first as a contributor, like you said. And then after that program, um, it had such a good response that I sort of stayed in touch with Channel 4 and they talked to me about, well, we'd love to continue making docs with you. And obviously docs are about covering factual things, real life. And what was happening in my real life at that time is I set up a charity. So they said, well, let's make a series and let's follow that charity, which for me was quite nerve wracking because I thought, well, I don't actually know how to set up a charity and I'm kind of making this up as I go along. (laughs) It's quite stressful. And I was meeting lots of people who were telling me their stories that they'd been born with different genetic conditions, different facial disfigurements. So they turned it into a series called My Beautiful Friends. And it was the plight of these other people and me meeting them. And then in in the background, a bit of sort of what was happening with me day to day and setting up that, that foundation. So, and then after that went out, I think that was like a three or four part series. Again, it was received really well. It, it won awards so my relationship continued with them where I ended up signing an exclusivity with Channel 4 I think for eight years and then I wow. yeah moved away from sort of being the subject and it was into sort of things that I was interested in and other contributors and then into entertainment with a entertainment series called Body Shockers um, and it was a really good time actually at Channel 4 and probably slightly ahead of the curve in that we weren't seeing as much diversity on telly in terms of disfigurement and disability. So yeah, I was I was really proud to work with them at that time. Yeah, you said 
well, if I must accept that I have permanently changed, then it's the industry I must now change. And I wonder if we could reflect a little bit on your contribution to changing the industry. Yeah, I mean, massive statement, and I'm not sure that it's me that has has changed the industry, but I suppose every single person that shows up authentically, and it's not just me, there's loads of people that do that, um, and that sort of resists the temptation to Photoshop and edit and you know, just sort of tells it how it is, contributes to that. And it's those minute little things because in the opposite way, when we get used to seeing all this curated, edited stuff, that conditions us too. So, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to put that burden on people because why should anybody go out there and fight, fight that fight? It, obviously, it's exhausting. But if you can, if you've got capacity and, and you've got it in you, if you can show up and be authentic, do because it really helps and it really changes things it might not be possible every day because it's exhausting but where you can do do it because it does help and you know I think we've seen a big change um in representation in media uh, on social platforms for the real positive um so it's it's good to acknowledge you know it's, I know it's important to talk about when when we're not doing things right but it's also really good to acknowledge the progress as well and in terms of you know, setting up your charity and you received an OBE for your services to charity. And I think reflecting on that and looking at your contribution in, in terms of the actual change that you've made to people's lives and something that I thought was really interesting was when you set up the UK's first residential burns rehabilitation centre and how your own experience had kind of fed into what you wanted people to be able to access after they were discharged. Can we talk about how your own experiences have really shaped your approach to setting up the foundation and the aftercare element? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the history of lots of charities, most of them are founded by a sort of person-led experience. And depending how old the charity is, sometimes along the way, you you lose that story and you're not you're not sure how it was founded. And mine was absolutely initially founded on that I had to travel abroad for treatment and only to France. You know, when you hear of people going abroad for treatment, you assume like America or somewhere really far away. So when it was such a close European country, you know, for me, it was crazy that this wasn't available to UK patients. And I had had this platform with the documentaries where people, other people wanted to help. And I was okay. I didn't need any more help. You know, I was doing good and people wanted to donate money. And I thought, well, I can't, I can't take money off people, you know, and actually there's so much support here that, and it's not ending. So wouldn't it be great to direct this because there's loads of other people like me that don't get this privilege, that don't get this platform. So the charity was sort of founded initially as just a bit of a like piggy bank thinking, well, I could just give out grants to people so they can go to France too. But that sort of model has complexities because people need to be supported. Some people have different situations to me where they already have children, they don't want to go abroad. So then as the charity formalized and became more professional and had a bigger board of trustees and and eventually staff, you know, I was a volunteer um, working there. But as that grew, we realized we don't need to send people out of the country, we can bring them here. And then, you know, it was formed in 2010. So sort of fast forward 13 years later we we have this service we take patients um it's an inpatient service it's residential where they can stay so actually tomorrow i'm traveling traveling up to uh, st helens liverpool where our services are we've got a big launch of a new service tomorrow um 
So yeah, it, it's been a really difficult thing to do because I don't have any background um, in charity, but even just in the corporate world, you know, I never worked. You know, funny thing, my, my sister's a PA in IT to the IT directors. And I remember ringing her one day being like, Suze, answer the phone. She came out of a meeting, answered the phone. And she was like, what? I was like, how do I load a stapler? And she was like, are you kidding me? She was like, you're the CEO of a charity. I was like, I know, but I've never had to load a stapler. I don't, you know, and it was just this whole thing of, you know, had I applied for a job to run a charity, I never would have got it because I didn't have the merits and at all. But I suppose I had this person-led experience and I learned how to delegate to people that were qualified. And now, you know, I sit on the board as a, a trustee, a founder, and I'm a volunteer, I'm a fundraiser, I'm a mentor, um, which is great. And we have a real CEO that does know how to load a state plus. So that's, <laughs> that's thankfully um, a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frenta Williams slips through. Here's a shot. It's in. This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Because you have this platform because of your TV work, you also know lots of other people in TV. You've spoken about your relationship and friendship with Simon Cowell and how amazing he's been at helping and donating and raising awareness and you know doing a lots of back of house stuff as well, doing it without any need for publicity. Does it help to have these people who, with your platform, to be able to reach out in that sense? Yeah, I mean, Simon's been so wonderful. He's such a genuine person. Um, and like you said, he hasn't just given what you'd expect celebrities to give, the, the sort of public support and interviews and things like that. He's gone across the board um, financially, uh, with advice, um, giving me so much of his time, not just me, the other burn survivors as well. He's even been to our hospital, to our centre, and spent the day with our patients. Um, and so is his partner, Lauren Silverman. She's run a lot of fundraising lunches and dinners for us. So, yeah, you couldn't hope for better patrons of a charity. Um, and I, I suppose it is good in this world to be connected um, to sort of people to help the cause and raise the profile. But I suppose surprisingly, not always that world is generous. You know, Simon is a real exception. And sometimes with celebrity support, it can only be sort of the name and the profile that you get. And actually, um, in a way, what has been qu quite amazing to witness and does restore your faith in society 
is people who donate, it's not about the wealth, it's about the generosity and the time and the compassion and the empathy. And that doesn't necessarily come from the most wealthiest of donors. And some people can go out of their way to really help you. And and that helps you to experience the good in people, which is quite enriching. You know, when people talk about, oh, if you're depressed, uh, volunteer, do some charity work. It does do amazing things to your sort of empathy level and your, your faith in the human race. And you've said it countless times before, but sometimes it is those tiny little moments that actually restore our faith in humanity or it's often not the big moments that make us feel really good. Sometimes it's, you know, a smile from a stranger or noticing someone stand up for someone else on the tube who needs a seat or being thoughtful. It isn't always the biggest gestures it's the small ones that that person can make at that time yeah I think those like like you said those little micro pockets of humanity and people doing good things you know like when you lose your wallet and someone on Facebook puts it on there and you get your wallet back and you're like there are people that care that's and and the same in like everyday relationships you know it's like not big displays of your partner buying you an expensive handbag or whatever people boast about online. It's somebody that like gets up and makes you your coffee when you're running late or helps you pack your lunchbox because you've got a long day. And, you know, I just think those things make you feel valid and that that somebody is, I suppose it's actually having your needs met that's so important. You've written books, launched a podcast, had a successful career as a broadcaster, including hosting your own breakfast show. And I wanted to talk about the importance of writing and talking for you and if writing has been cathartic in some way. Yeah, I mean, reading and writing is something that's always been a passion of mine. It's what I did well in at school. Um, you know, terrible at maths and or, yeah. And now I'm like my daughter, my eldest is in year four and I'm having to Google the answers to year <laughs> four maths. It's a nightmare. But yeah, reading and writing was something I got pleasure from. So I was always able to do it because I enjoyed it. And, and now in my job, reading and writing is essential. You know, when you know yourself, when you're interviewing people, you need to research them, read their books, um, write out your, your questions. And I think it's important not to just lose that love in your downtime like don't just do it for work um and it's difficult if you've got a family and a, and a job it's really hard to read books you know a lot of us can only read books when we're on holiday or if we're on a train or a plane or something but never lose that sort of just doing it for joy and doing it for pleasure um I'm really guilty of not necessarily pen to paper writing. So what I'll do is it's the notes section of my iPhone that is just full of ramblings and little things. And when it comes to you, write it in the notes section and you'll always need it. You know, you're always, people say, Oh, what do you think on this? Or can you answer that? Or what would, you know, and you'll think, Oh, I can pull that from that in there. So yeah, I mean, if I ever lost my notes section, I'd be over <laughs> personality less about that notes section. I definitely do it when, when I was on my way to work this morning and I was listening to you on a podcast and suddenly I was thinking oh I'd love to ask this and like you say in my notes section it's all my interviewees and all these random questions or like a little note saying oh make sure to ask this when we talk about jail mums or don't forget this or maybe ask about this because that could be interesting and like you say if you didn't have the notes it's a good little brain dump isn't it yeah. And it's a nice place as well where you feel like it's gone. So when I'm going to sleep, I'm not thinking, right. oh, I have to remember. Like I can just, yeah. yeah, And it's not in a notebook that you'll lose. You know, like if you yeah. lose a physical notebook, then your life's over. I want to also talk about your turn on Strictly. So Radio Times, our readers are massive fans of the show. You're an incredibly busy person. Did you choose to do that for a little bit of fun for yourself? 
Yeah, I mean, I just finished on a documentary that was actually about a girl that was murdered. And I thought, you know what, this feels so lighthearted and fun and so much fake tan and sequins and leotards and all that jazz. And it was everything that you think it would be and more. You know, it was it was a bit like being in like the West End where you were in like a production that, you know, the makeup, the clip in hair and stuff. And I suppose also like having the opportunity to dance with somebody that's danced all their life and won awards and been in competitions. You know, where would you get to have a partner like that? It's quite a unique opportunity. Yeah. I also wonder, sorry, this sounds like it's going in a strange way, but just to come back to that documentary, how you deal with the burden of telling other people's stories. And I I don't mean that in the sense of I know as broadcasters and as anyone who works in the media industry and in journalism, you have to tell those stories and that's part of your job. And it's the real honour of getting people to talk to you and being able to tell those stories, how you deal with perhaps not burden isn't the right word, but switching off and making sure that you're protected. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, in my new documentary, Jailhouse Mums, it was all about the women's stories where women had never spoke before about things that were going right back into childhood. And I knew they were going to be very sensitive subjects and and private things in and most thoughts. So it was about the time spent off camera with them as much as the on-camera stuff. So not getting too obsessed and focused on the documentary and being like, we want to get this footage, this is going to be great. Actually letting go of that and saying, this person may have never told this to anyone and giving them that time with you off-camera to build that relationship and that trust Um, and not rushing them and not worrying if the angle that you wanted didn't come out and, and allowing people that sort of breathing space Um, and I think for me in in this series I made it with an all-female crew and we were all away together six hours behind the UK so the off-screen time and the aftermath of when we were away from the contributors we would always go out for dinner in the evening and we would kind of like decamp and sort of unburden each other and give each other space to talk about the day and what we'd thought and So I think it's kind of staying connected with your colleagues when the camera turns off and all sort of sharing experiences. Can we also talk about how you foster this sense of resilience and confidence? Because it's something that I really admire about you is that your confidence comes from a really deep-rooted sense of self. And I wonder how that impacts your work as well. Well, yeah, I think everybody's... um, You know, the reason there's those cliches about getting more sort of confident and resilient as you get older is because it's true because it's life experiences and and the less experiences you have and if you are cotton wool wrapped or you shut yourself away you sort of go backwards you know and and you become anxious I suppose and you stop trusting your own judgment so it's those life experiences that that call on us to sort of dig deep and you know even when this when stuff goes wrong it's it's really powerful stuff going wrong is no bad thing you know it's really really powerful and I think as you become more resilient you start to trust yourself that whatever happens I've got the ability to be malleable not to sit in it and be rigid I can re I can evolve I can reinvent so that confidence in yourself to be able to do that makes you realize that not that you're untouchable but that whatever happens it's okay you know it's not sort of 
the be all to end all. And, and sometimes society is a bit guilty for that, you know, fearing the dark times fi- and, and British culture, fi- finding a solution for everything, comforting people, offering cups of tea and flowers and, you know, all this sort of self-care, take a bath, take a walk, like just sit with it and, and actually say, you know, that this is life. Like suffering is life. You know, it's, it's okay. Like it's going to be all right. I know what you mean in terms of how we're almost encouraged sometimes to move on too quickly or or to devalue it. Yeah, mm. and that we should be able to move on and sometimes actually something you can't move on from and mm. it just has to be part of you and that's okay. Yeah. And it's about how you deal with it, how you move forward rather than forgetting it or pretending it doesn't exist. Yeah, and I think if people look back on their own lives whether it's by the decade or however you sort of grade your life, whether it's at different jobs and employment, each time something sort of happened, you can see the subtle changes in you and how when something happened the next time, who you were and how you showed up. So it's no bad thing. I want to talk about your docuseries on W, Katie Piper's Jailhouse Moms, where you travel across America visiting prisons and jails with very different approaches to pregnancy and motherhood behind bars. And let's start with, you volunteer in British prisons, and I wondered how that came about. Yeah, so that was off-screen, the British prisons. I They sort of wrote to me and they said they'd been doing this project about women throughout history that had inspired them, and, I, and I'd been chosen in this project, and they'd named a part of the prison after me. And would I come in um, to to visit the women? So I was a bit like, well... You know, I do a lot of charity work for my own charity and then I'm an ambassador for women's aid. So I go into refuges and places like that. I'd never really thought about going into a prison, but I, f- I felt like I couldn't say no because they'd done all this kind of legwork and I didn't want to sort of let them down. And I was surprised when I went in. I, I really sort of had a lot in common with the women. I really liked a lot of them. Um, and what turned into started out as one trip turned into me going in for International Women's Day, then going back to do workshops, talks beauty treatments, um, all kinds of different things, and then going to other prisons um, and just becoming really fascinated and then wanting to make this show, which kind of opened the door on a really unseen world, you know, particularly out in America. It's very different culture, very different prison system, legal system to what we have in the UK. And also a really unexpected place to find motherhood. You know, motherhood behind bars is a place all of us hope we'll never find it. I mean, what was so fascinating to me was I actually wouldn't know the answer to this in the UK, but seeing how long some of those women were detained Mm. before their trial and not necessarily even knowing trial dates Mm. or things like that, which in, in my head, you know, often for drug crimes as well, which quite a few of the women you speak to. Are, are in there because of drug offences, but it's for possession. It's not necessarily, you know, any, they weren't causing harm to another person, for example. So that was really fascinating. What did you learn from making the documentary about the inner workings of the American judicial system? Yeah, I mean, you're right. People just languish in county jail, which is their version of what we have, you know, remand, when people have remand in our prisons. And they just get forgotten about, particularly if they're affected by poverty. You know, they can't afford attorneys. They can't get phone calls. They can't communicate with anyone in the outside world. And like you said, sometimes it's there. They just violated their probation or they had a possession of weed or whatever. And they're languishing for a long, long time, which is really, really sad. I mean, I think they, they incarcerate the largest number 
number of women in the world in America. And I think, you know, this subject is controversial. You know, when the first episode of the series went out two weeks ago, it's on every week, every Wednesday night for five weeks. And the first couple of Fs on social got a mixed response where some people are like, well, they've made their choices. Why do I care about these women and their children? And it's like, until you go into this space, you don't realize what the prison population is. So male versus female crime is very different. And, you know, women are, I think 60% are in there for drug related offenses. So you're looking at women who are used as mules by men and criminal gangs, drug mules, or women that are directly affected by addiction themselves. And they would have been born into generational addiction, incarceration, maybe born addicted with their parents using whilst they were pregnant. A very small percent of women go to prison for violent crime. So you don't walk into a maximum security prison and meet loads of Myra Hindley's and Rose West's. Like That's why those prisoners get so much profile because they're just so rare. What you meet is women like you and I, um, whose life has unraveled, and it might be due to drugs, mental health, poverty, but they haven't had that support system. They haven't had people around them to, to help them. Um, so it's really sad. And, you know, in the series, I don't just visit prisons. I visit jails. I visit detox facilities, Christian missionaries, alternative facilities that let people have their children with them, babies. But it's very different in each program. But although the experience is different, there's this common thread of the child is always the victim and I will literally be sat in a cell with somebody interviewing them and they will say, oh, my grandma's on the other wing and my mum's in this corridor and actually my daughter was arrested last week and is stuck in county. And you think, how are four generations of women in this facility? It's obviously not working. Yeah, I, I was also shocked by the number of people who are victim of victims of a drug abuse that they cannot get out of and there doesn't seem to be the social support there, you know, and that's how it becomes a systemic problem is because there's no way of breaking the cycle. And there were a few contributors to the documentaries who, you know, we're really starting to see actually how some of these more forward-thinking approaches perhaps are actually making real change and and stopping some of these cycles. And like you say, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to hear a woman saying, yeah, I've been addicted to drugs since I was nine years old because I was the victim of sexual abuse. And it's incredibly harrowing. Yeah. And that story was so common. That start in childhood that you just talked about there was a running theme everywhere you went. And some of these alternative facilities were amazing. You know, they were, they, you're still court ordered by the judge, you're still held there, but they'd have all, it was a bit like a giant university and your child could live with you up to the age of 13. And I went to like parenting classes to, to watch what the women were doing. And some people were asking questions like, should I hug my child? Uh, should I talk to my toddler? And you sit there thinking, you grew up with nobody hugging you. Nobody spoke to you. You were ignored all your life. Because if you're asking these questions in a parenting class, it's because this didn't happen for you. Because all when we parent, we just em emulate our experiences from our own childhood. So you can't take for granted what these women came from to, to where they are now. Um, there are some really amazing, like the program has some really, you know, harrowing and sad parts. Absolutely. But there's some amazing like displays of, um, survival and 
cope how how resourceful the women are like things like beauty treatments they will be able to do their hair removal of their top lip and their eyebrows by breaking off the thread of their trousers and threading they will cook meals and use their nails to cut up chicken and make quesadillas for each other they will make choirs and sing together for mental health they make these sort of make makeshift families where one woman takes on the role as the dad the younger prisoners become the teenagers um and there is this incredible sisterhood where you think wow these people have so little and they are determined to survive um but you were always conflicted all, all the time throughout the filming i think it's so interesting because when i was watching it and i binge watched it which is oh, a bit strange but i did watch four episodes back to back and I was thinking because they're all available on UK TV what I was struggling with and it and it is really interesting because I think that's the point of documentaries and I think it's the power of them is I felt an incredible empathy with these women but sometimes I guess the counter argument is when we lift the lid and we see the empathy perhaps we're not always aware of well there's a reason why these people are here. And I wonder for you, as the broadcaster in that situation and as the documentary maker, how do you grapple with with that? Yeah, I mean, even by the admission of some of the women, they would say, this is the best place for me, I should be in prison. And my family are the least worried about me when I'm in prison because I'm off the streets. And I'm glad my child's with my grandma or my aunt and that I'm going to sort my life out. So some people, they were fine with that. Others, you just felt so sorry for them. They were mothering for the next 30 years from a payphone. Like they'd just given birth, the child had been taken away and they weren't going to see that kid again till they were 28, till the kid was 28 years old. And you just feel like that's not the solution here, that you're just fracturing families. But you felt different every day depending on who you would meet. And, you know, some people would tell you stories where they were born And by the age of three, their mum was letting drug dealers who were living in the house rape them in exchange for drugs. And then they tell you they tried meth at the age of nine to anesthetize the pain. And you think, so if that happened to me, what would I do? Because maybe I would actually do exactly the same thing. And you really try to understand that. And, you know, you do like a handful of days filming and you go back to your sort of travel lodge. And and because I'm a mum, you know, and I think, God, I really miss my kids because we talk about kids all day and we talk about women yearning for their children and it's making me miss mine. I, I'm six hours behind. I can't ring them there in bed. And I thought, that's how you feel. And you're going home every three weeks to the UK. Imagine these women have forgotten the scent of their child, you know, and they they aren't going to touch their child for years and they're having every Mother's Day alone and you feel guilty for missing your own kids. And, and also the, the comparison of the states, you know, if you're in prison in the UK, you can usually see your kids through visits and you might be able to get um, grants from charities if your kids can't afford public transport. In the States, you can go to a jail that's a 15-hour drive from where you lived and then you're you're leading, leading like elderly grandparents to raise your kids and they, they can't get to the jail. So even just like postcode lottery of like, you may never see your kids again until you come out. So many different things um, in comparison to how we live here in the UK in such a smaller country. Gosh, yeah, it's, it is awful. And it's interesting what you said, because a lot of it does come through in the documentary about you, you know, missing home mm. and you're on the other side of the world doing your job. But that can't be easy and comes with its own challenges of being, you know, a working mum, but also with two young children. And also talking about, like you say, women with babies who can't be with theirs. So 
it must have been so complicated and so complex for you. Yeah. And it's quite sobering because I think it's naive to go through life thinking, well, that would never be me. I would never make that choice. That won't happen to me. Because I hate the word choice because a lot of those women never had any choices and they were born into things and left a very little um, chance and, and sort of hope and help. And I think hopefully the lockdown made people more empathetic because suddenly everything changed for people. People lost businesses, money, savings, mental health. And you can see how life, you can be hit with these things that can just come into your life and turn it upside down. So this is my biggest hope from the series that it humanizes this, this part of the population, gives an insight to a world that you think you know about, but you don't and, and helps people sort of create a little bit more empathy and understanding around it. Because even if you think you don't care about what happens in prisons or, or the prison population, a large percent of that population will need to come back to society. So it will affect you anyway in the long run. Yeah. And just on that, in the documentary, you go to this Christian centre uh, and they have spaces for women and their children to live. And it was a really interesting conversation that you start there because that is social care run by a charity. That's not uh, aid provided by the government. And the gentleman in the documentary talks about how you know it's, it's not fair to put this on the government or they don't have the capacity. And I wonder where you sit on that or what you thought about that, the idea that you also, in your own charity work, you're an advocate for government change. You've got the campaign for a minimum sentence for acid attacks and things like that. So it's also one of the questions that I think came about was exploring the responsibility of government versus individual. And maybe that feels different from a UK perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely different UK versus US. And this Christian missionary centre that I went to, it was in the deep south, the Bible Belt, uh, down in Alabama. And um, very different culture to us as well. Everyone's religious there, you know. And this it's called the Love Lady Centre, the missionary. And the funny thing was they'd have no government funding, but they would have government referrals. So the state would send them prisoners. The judge would court order prisoners to them, but wouldn't fund it. And really what I saw of their culture, you know, their drug, their drug epidemic is worse than ours, opioids, fentanyl. And you would meet people that were, had been, you know, middle class people with a career, responsibilities, children, maybe hurt their back in like a, a minor car accident and had got addicted to painkillers that had destroyed their lives and turned them into people living on the streets, using, injecting. Um, and the way they could get those drugs were, you know, prescriptions in the US, you just get them through the post. You don't need to see a doctor. And, and they're very strong. Even just the drugs that are in like, um, Walmart where the painkillers were so strong and you think is is this problem like being contributed to by the government as well like, what's the regulation here with their pharmaceutical companies so that was quite alarming to see um, but you know I'm a Christian myself and it didn't surprise me the generosity that they had in Alabama from churches wealthy individuals that were funding this place and it was an amazing centre but I had to really be quite professional and, and, and stay neutral because it is controversial rehabilitation led by the premises that you believe in God, because the center said everyone and anyone was welcome, but all the teachings centered around Christianity. So it can, I can see how that would be problematic if you wanted to access treatment and help, but you didn't believe in the teachings of God. You know, for me, I found the center amazing because I do believe in that, but you know, 
it's not everyone's cup of tea. Actually, that's the episode that goes out this Wednesday. So I'll be interested to see how people react on on social because I know that religion can be quite controversial for some people. Yeah, I thought it was a real talent of yours in that documentary because you do talk about your faith, but also you weren't scared to ask questions and you weren't scared to challenge, which I think is a really strong skill to have as a broadcaster because you're trying to not give your perspective. You're trying to give the perspective so that people can ask questions or think about things for themselves and you need to present them with the full story to do that. So that was definitely... I. I thought that was a really, really good episode. Well, I feel like years ago you were told not to talk about religion or politics and now it's the only thing people talk about all the time since Brexit. <laughs> well, I also think if you have a faith now, sometimes it's something that you keep back, yeah. not necessarily put first and foremost, which in itself is interesting. And we discuss the power of documentaries and their ability to invite someone who might know very little about a topic into um, a situation or a world of someone else and to see the world from just a little bit of a different perspective. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, what is so magical, isn't it? You're in your living room and you're transformed into the day, a day in the life of somebody else, a glimmer into what they're going through. And and again, like having this empathy and understanding and not walking past people in the street and staring at them and not getting it. And particularly people that maybe d can't or don't take the time to read. It's almost, you know, a bit like sort of picking up a book and submersing yourself into, into that individual story. And it might come initially from a voyeuristic sort of angle, but if it's a really intelligent, responsibly made documentary, that will change and evolve where you really start to understand that person and, and want to know more, I think, hopefully. Yeah. Well, Katie, thank you so much for coming on the Radio Times podcast. This has been a wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me and thanks for all your time. I really enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my conversation with documentary maker Louis Theroux in which we discuss his guilty pleasure and how he actually wanted to write for sitcoms or my chat with the broadcaster Elizabeth Day where we talk about the power of vulnerability. Both episodes can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing. <laughs>